about fly fishing internet radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, the host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Kirk Johnson, and he'll be answering your questions on the feather thief. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the internet. If you'd like to ask Kirk a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. You'll see a form in the right-hand column of our website. Uh, just use that to sign up, fill in your name, email address, and uh, we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, uh, Podbean, Feedspot, wherever you get your, your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms and at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share our podcast. And when you do, use the hashtag Ask About Fly Fishing, Fly Fishing, and the Feather Thief. Uh, in fact, if you have a moment, do it right now. We've got some links on our homepage where you can uh, uh, share share the knowledge right there. So, this content is uh, and this broadcast is copyrighted in the property of the Knowledge Group Inc. Doing businesses Ask About Fly Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Kirk Johnson about the Feather Thief. Douglas Outdoors is a manufacturer of premium quality fly rods, raising the expectations that anglers should expect in componentry, design, engineering, craftsmanship, and in turn performance. Led by head rod designer Fred Cantui, uh, Douglas has achieved award-winning rods featuring eye-opening strength-to-weight ratios and dialed-in technique-specific actions and tapers that cater to a host of different species. Douglas Outdoors has a truly deep lineup of rods, ranging from 12 weights for monster tarpon to two weights for tiny brook chow and everything in between. Check them out at douglasoutdoors.com. Again, that's douglasoutdoors.com. Before we introduce Kirk, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we're going to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in their drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Kirk's section that says, click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link, fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Kirk's book, The Feather Thief. And here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question uh, or question. Sometimes I ask a two-part question uh, at the end of the show. And the question will be about something that Kirk and I talk about during the show. So submit your, your answer along with your name and location in the text box on our homepage, and maybe you'll win Kirk's book, The Feather Thief. Tonight, our guest is Kirk Johnson. Kirk is the author of The Feather Thief, Beauty, Obsession, and the Natural History Heist of the Century, and to be a friend is fatal. The fight to save the Iraqis, America left behind. Uh, both two books uh, that he's written. He's also the founder of the List Project to resettle Iraqi allies. His writing has appeared in the New Yorker, the New York Times, Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post Magazine, the Wall Street Journal, and Foreign Policy, among others. Prior to the List Project, Johnson served in Iraq with the U.S. Agency for International Development in Baghdad 
and then Fallujah as the agency's first coordinator for reconstruction in the war-torn city. He's a senior fellow with the USC Annenberg Center on Communication, Leadership, and Policy, recipient of fellowships from the American Academy in Berlin, Yado McDowell, and the Wolitzer Foundation. Prior to his work in Iraq, he conducted research on political Islamism as a Fulbright Scholar in Egypt, and he received a BA from the University of Chicago in 2002. Born in West Chicago, he lives in Los Angeles with his wife, son, and daughter. Kirk, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, good to have you. Well, um, there is some interest, uh, a, a um, question coming right up. So I thought be, before we delve into the uh, feather thief, that you share a little bit about what you were doing before that, uh, and as we just talked about in, in your bio that I read uh, to start things out. Can you share a little bit about your, your background? Because the feather thief is a far cry from what you were doing, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In fact, uh, when, when the feather thief came out, I, I had a, a whole bunch of emails and phone calls from from friends from that other part of my life saying like it's just it's so strange but there's a guy with your name who's who's now writing about some kid that stole a bunch of feathers and I had to kind of <laughs> tell them that it was it was the same person but uh but yeah uh you know for for the better part of a decade um leading up to this book uh I was kind of consumed by the war in Iraq. I was against the war, but I come from a, a family of public servants, and I was raised to, to understand that it's not just enough to be against something, it's what you're going to do about it. And, and I, I speak Arabic and had lived in the Middle East a lot, and I kept reading about how our government needed people that understood the region and, and knew the language. And so I felt that even though I opposed the invasion, like how could anyone oppose the reconstruction efforts? We were trying to rebuild schools and clinics and roads and all of that. Uh, and so I went over uh, in 05, as you said, first to Baghdad and then Fallujah. And uh, because I was one of the only uh, Americans that spoke the language, I became very close with the Iraqis who were risking their lives to help us every day. Uh, I mean, you can imagine we had something, I think, at the peak around over 150,000 Americans there, uh, soldiers, Marines, aid workers, diplomats, contractors. Hardly any of them spoke the language, and so we were completely dependent on tens of thousands of Iraqis who were, you know, getting a target on their back for helping the Americans. And, um, you know, I started having friends of mine that were assassinated because they were seen as traitors for, for working with me. And when I got back to the States, I realized just how we had, we were just abandoning these people uh, who had kind of believed in us. And so that kicked off a, I didn't know what I was doing. I was just, uh, you know, frankly pissed off about how we were treating them. And, um, and so I started speaking out. I was only, 25 or 26 then, uh, and unwittingly kind of uh, got thrust to the, the front of this long battle with the U.S. government. didn't matter if it was a Republican or a Democrat in the White House. It was just the doors were closed to these people. And so I, I built this organization that, you know, was had hundreds of lawyers pressing their cases with the State Department and Homeland Security, and we ended up getting thousands of Iraqis out uh they're now u.s citizens um 
and I fought for the creation of this special visa program for our Iraqi and Afghan interpreters. But at any rate, all of that to say, the this was, as you can imagine, pretty um, exhausting work and kind of depressing, to be honest. Um, the kinds of things that come into my inbox are, I wouldn't wish them upon anyone. Um, and sometime around, I think it was when I was 20, 27 or so, I had an offer to go fly fishing with with someone. I was living in Boston at the time. It was up in New Hampshire. And as a Midwesterner, I was raised to sort of scoff at fly fishermen as sort of snobby and elitist, and they look down on, you know, on, on bait casters like us. I mean, I grew up just chucking night crawlers for, for carp and bluegills and things in this toxic river in our backyard. Um, so I was very skeptical, but I went fly fishing, and it was like 30 minutes in the water, and I was, I was like, oh, my, I mean, I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life. It was just, it was just instant. And so that became a kind of release valve for me, um, mm-hmm. where any time I had any free, you know, free day, I would just chuck my gear in the car and drive up to Maine or Vermont or New Hampshire. And um, I was in New Mexico uh, working on my first book when I, which was about the war, and and I booked a guide there uh, who you've had on your show, Spencer Syme. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was just a random Google search, but it was halfway through our, our first day of fishing that he started telling me about this strange heist that had happened of a of a million dollars worth of rare birds from the British Museum. And as he was saying it to me, I could almost see the structure of the book and, and what an incredible story it could be if it was true. Uh, and so that that was almost 10 years ago um, that sort of fateful day out on the river with Spencer, but that started a kind of private obsession of mine where I would be in DC meeting with senators or testifying or, you know, very much involved in the policy side of my work. And then I'd get back to my hotel and log into these fly tying forums and take screenshots of (laughs) Of who was saying what to who and, and, you know, private Facebook groups and taking screenshots of skins that were being sold or feathers that were being auctioned off. So, uh, so quite, anyway, quite uh, this, yeah. yeah, it is. And it's just to say that this story is, it was so different from that past part of my life that, um, I, I mean, I'm not lying when I say that it kind of became something of a life raft for me personally, just that, uh, sure. I, you know, I didn't want to spend the rest of my life uh, dealing with the Iraq war. I wanted to go on and do something else, you know, and so this yeah. story, as crazy as it is, was my way out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Chris Leonard, I want to read his question before we move on and talk about the feather thief, but he was, he was on my show two weeks ago. Uh, he's a guide up in Mammoth Lakes, just north of you. So, um, a place you can go fishing from L.A. It's a bit of a drive, but uh, mm-hmm. he said uh, he, he guides in the Eastern Sierra, and one of his clients mailed uh, him a copy of your book a year ago. He said it came up in a conversation during the guide trip. He said, I read it cover to cover in a couple of days, and he said, such a great story. 
Uh, he says he's got a question about something that comes up early in your story. He's curious about the LIST project, which you were just talking about. He says, I served in the U.S. Peace Corps in Transylvania between 1998 and 2000, so I have a bleeding heart for those less fortunate than me. Can you tell me uh, what, what's the status of the LIST project today? Is it still going, or, or what, how does that Yeah, so there's, I mean, we're not taking on any new cases anymore. There was some maybe, I mean, it was, it's been several years now, but where, um, you know, I was going full time into writing the book that I didn't, I didn't want to take anybody's contributions anymore if, if I wasn't going to be able to be a proper steward of it. Um, there are still a number of cases that our partnering law firms are handling. But the truth is that, you know, without getting too much into into politics, but our doors are effectively shut now. So um, yeah. if you're an Iraqi interpreter uh, and you didn't get out before the Trump administration, you're pretty screwed yeah. to be crass yeah. about it. But um, yeah. so I, I have people that write to me from from all over the world, but principally Iraqis and Afghans and now some Syrians that have stepped forward and helped some of our forces and I, I, I'm in this un, it brings me no no joy to do so but I'm basically having to tell them to go look to another country to help them because we just we don't value that service yeah. anymore so. yeah well thank you for your service and um, um, I'm sure you helped a lot of people and it's something that uh, I'm sure you cherish uh, for, for the rest of your life. Um, but I can see how that's a burden that you got to get rid of and, and move on. And, and the feather thief, my gosh, what an exciting research <laughs> it must have been, uh, you doing what you were doing to find out how it all happened. Um, tell us again about the beginning. You started to tell us you were with uh, Spencer Syme down in New Mexico fishing, and, and Matt Rossett wants to know how all that came down. Uh, could you elaborate on your trip, what you were doing, and how uh, how he initially uh, the, the conversation you know led to the feather thing? Yeah, so I was I was living briefly in Taos and uh, called up the local fly shop there, and they they just connected me with with Spencer. I don't even know if the fly shop is still there. I think it is, but um, and. You know, I was still, I, I mean, I, I feel like I'm going to be saying this my whole life, that I'm still a total amateur when it when it comes to fly fishing, although I I usually am getting something on the line every, every outing now, but except for the the Kern River. I don't know if any, <laughs> that's my closest, <laughs> that's my closest river to L.A. right now, and it, it has skunked me every time I've gone there. Um, uh. It's just driving me nuts, but... Um, we went to, if memory serves, we went to the Red River on the uh, that first day. We ended up doing several, uh, many outings. Um, but the first time I heard the story, we were on the Red River, and um, I think we were just swinging droppers, or or I, I know there were some dry flies, some elk hair caddis, I think. But you know, I was just trying to absorb everything I could just because I, I wanted to learn every kind of rock formation and what tree that was and what, you know, what the aquatic life cycles were. And I, I'm, you know, trying to vacuum all of that up. And um, 
we were taking a break for lunch and he was just setting these sandwiches out and he I, he had a uh, in his fly box he had one of these Victorian salmon flies and I'd never seen any of those before um, I thought it was kind of a joke to be honest I didn't know any any you know anything could be attracted to it it was beautiful but it was just I thought it was sort of like a I don't know for lack of a better word but just some sort of like stunt fly tying or something um, and so we started talking about that art form and then that that's what led to uh, you know the first telling of of what Edwin Rist had done and it was so strange that I you know I didn't know Spencer at that point more than a few hours but I just thought oh this is one of these you know BS stories you hear out on the river um, mm -hmm. yeah. you know that's been you know disfigured telling after telling to the point where there's no real connection to what actually happened but I you right. know that night I went online and there wasn't much coverage about it but there were articles about this heist and and then he got me into these forums and and he was friends with a lot of on Facebook at least with a lot of the the principal characters and so um you know this really began on the river that day yeah and that yeah. then kicked off a uh a, you know a five plus year investigation wow five wow um yeah uh and just to keep people in um if you go to our podcast archive on the top of our website click there scroll down a little bit you'll see uh, we did the show with, with spencer simon september and uh it's talking about fishing the you know new, new mexico northern new mexico but at the end we talk about one of his hobbies which is tying those flies in his hands and making his own hook. So he's quite an incredible <laughs> fly tire himself. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was very interesting. But yeah, check out that show and you'll learn about uh, Spencer. Um, he's a, he was a great interview as well. Um, I need to take a quick break here, uh, Kirk, and we'll come right back and then we can you know, find out about uh, what, what this Feather Thief is all about and give us a Cliff sure. Notes version of it. Baja Fly Fishing is dedicated to fulfilling your vacation dreams, and just so there's no mistake, they derive as much pleasure helping a novice improve as they do fishing with a pro. From the casual to the hardcore, they can match your expectations with their experience and coaching. A vacation with Baja Fly Fishing is more than a fishing trip. It's a full-on Baja experience that you will remember forever. They know the Baja after 40 years of traveling its back roads, kayaking its shoreline, surfing and snorkeling while pioneering the fly fishing techniques that have evolved into the tactics used today. They are well versed in fly fishing the beach, in kayaks, on pongas, and are well versed in all tackle types. Join them in pursuit of roosterfish, dorado, marlin, sailfish, wahoo, jack raval, yellowfin, skipjack, and many other species. Learn more about Baja Fly Fishing Company by visiting their website at BajaFlyFish.com. Again, that's BajaFlyFish.com. Okay, Kirk, so before we dig into this, um, yeah, just tell us, um, you know, the cliff notes of, of the heist, and then we can dig into what you found out along the way, and that's really, uh, you know, what I found in your book. The really interesting part is what happened before and after and how we got there and, and all those things. So um, go ahead and, and give us the cliff notes of, of what happened. Sure, and, uh, you know, this is, I'm, uh, I'll give you as compressed version as I can, but in, in 09, um, 2009, 
an American named Edwin Rist, who was a pretty virtuoso salmon fly tire, was studying at the Royal Academy of Music in London, uh, which is you know one of the most prestigious uh, musical institutes in the world. He was a flautist, but he was he had this other half to his personality, which was fly tying. He had been tying these things ever since he was seven or eight. He was from upstate New York, uh, or Hudson Valley, New York, and uh, he was not an outdoorsy type. I still to this day don't think he's ever gone fishing in his life. He doesn't know how to fish. He just, something about the act of tying just transfixed him. And so at first he started tying trout flies. Uh, this all started when his, he was, his dad was watching one of these I think it was a Tom Rosenbauer, just Orvis Fly Fishing 101 video, and there was a brief little section on tying a trout fly, and, and Edwin walked in the room as they were demonstrating, you know, palmering hackle around around the shank of the hook, and he told me that the act of seeing this ordinary thing like a chicken feather kind of explode into something totally different was amazing. And so he, he starts, you know sort of obsessively tying these trout flies and then starts competing in these tournaments in New England and he's scooping up first prize every every time. He, I think he still holds one of the records up there for, I think he tied something like 65, like just flawless trout flies in, in one hour. And, um, and his younger brother was in on this too, but they were really uh, quite gifted. And at one of these shows, they came across the booth of of a, a guy by the name of Ed Muzzerall, known by Muzzy in the classic salmon fly tie community. And that was the first time he laid eyes on one of these Victorian salmon flies. And overnight, he was just, he was done with trout flies, and he wanted to get into salmon fly tie, and they were, they are by, by any standard, they're, they're much more beautiful and, uh, you know, complicated to tie than a nymph or something like that. So, right. so he gets into this in his young teens in a major way. And for any of your audience that has gotten into classic salmon fly tying, I mean, you can very quickly hit a, a wall here where you're looking at hundreds of different patterns and you may have the techniques and the skill set to, to tie these things, but you don't have the materials. And there are substitute and dyed feathers that you can use, but there's a kind of prestige in tying these according to the original recipes as they were consecrated in these books from the 19th century um, by Kelson and Blacker and, and others. And so this set Edwin on a kind of, now it seems like an inescapable path, but, you know, his life kind of became oriented around the pursuit of the original things. And so he would save up all of his money and he would buy like an inch or two of Argus feather. Um, but as good as he got with all of these, he just, this passion was sort of defined by uh, an absence that he just he he was thwarted. He couldn't tie the flies that he really wanted to tie because these feathers are expensive. I mean, one of these 
um, one of these flies in the Treherne series, it's called the blue chatterer, requires upwards of, of 1,500 or two grand worth of, of feathers uh, for a single fly. And as a you know 15-year-old student, he's not going to be able to afford these. So anyway, he gets to London. One of his fly-tying mentors tells him about the British Museum and this incredible collection. And as soon as he gets access to these specimens, uh, and he, he gains access through deception, um, telling the museum that he was a photographer photographing bird of paradise specimens for a, a friend who was doing a PhD, um, he starts, as soon as he lays eyes on these things and realizes just how valuable and how much there is and how flawless they are, I mean, they've been protected for, in some cases, two centuries, um, he starts plotting his return to the museum to steal them. And over the next nine months, roughly, um, he orders things like a diamond blade glass cutter and thousands of little Ziploc baggies that he, he'll use to sell off the, the chopped up feathers if he can pull this heist off. He registers a, a website, which he sets up as a kind of like e-commerce thing, uh, and, and eventually plots this all out, goes to the museum uh, in June of 2009, June 23rd, after performing in a recital, he takes the train about an hour north northwest of of London to this tiny town of Tring, where the sort of mother load of bird skins are stored, and you know slinks up this back alley behind the museum, which he had already cased. Um, looks around for a guard. He snips some barbed wire away. Uh, the diamond blade glass cutter didn't really work, but he bashes a window out. And amazingly, he had something like a couple hours uh, to himself in this collection. Uh, and he filled the suitcase and a backpack with around, I think it was 299 specimens, um, some of which had been gathered by, you know, pioneering naturalists like Alfred Russell Wallace and others. Climbs out the window, gets back on a train, and starts plucking the feathers and selling them to this kind of, I, I say cultish. They don't. They get pissed off at me whenever I say that word. But to this, <laughs> this, 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 you know, let's say tight knit, obsessive community of guys who, who they all knew Edwin, and Edwin knew them, and Edwin knew exactly how intense and red hot the demand was for these feathers and he starts sending emails he starts making little posts to to classicflytying.com and and elsewhere saying hey i've got a, a full flame bower bird or i've got a, i've got full katingas or i've got birds of paradise or red rough fruit crows um and i mean an american from the pacific northwest who's very much into this got on a plane and flew to london to to browse his his specimens and put an order in for I think around ten thousand dollars worth of these birds, um, he was not caught for I believe it was around fifteen or sixteen months, uh, and it was only kind of by dumb luck that he ended up getting caught. But he lawyered up 
and you know we can get into this if you want, but he basically in the end uh, received a suspended sentence, which just is really not much more than a slap on the wrist, and um, and uh, had to pay a small fine and received his degree from the Royal Academy of Music and was sent on his way. The Brits were so embarrassed by this crime, which they, they described it in court as a catastrophic theft from humanity. These specimens are not just sitting there gathering dust. They, these, these have been, in many cases, they've been, these birds were, have been preserved since we even, before the word scientist was even coined. And for generations and generations, scientists have been studying, you know, a specimen from, from 1850 gathered from, you know, Papua New Guinea, and we know the exact altitude and the date that it was caught. And these birds are sort of like the, they were described by Alfred Russell Wallace as the, the individual letters that go up to make the volumes of the Earth's deep history. These specimens were, were so important that when they've been used, we, we understand the impact of DDT pesticides. We understand you can pluck a single one of these feathers and you can reconstruct the food chain from 200 years ago with the technology that we have now. So they're kind of markers to the Earth as it was uh, at the moment that they were collected. And so... In some respects, they have to me. They always had a kind of magical quality to them, in that they held answers to questions that scientists haven't even thought of yet. Right. And right. and so Edwin, in stealing them, basically stole from all of us and ended up. You know, I, the estimates are that he. Uh, I th I think the British prosecutors put it at something like a quarter million dollars that he made from selling just in that first year or so. Wow. Um, but, you know, for all intents and purposes, he got away with it. And the lion's share of the birds were, were not returned. And so by the time I heard about the story, I felt a kind of, uh, I don't know why, but I felt like it was wrong that these birds were still out there and I could see fly tires joking about the crime and, you know, it was not like, it was not leading to any kind of reform in that community or anything. It just, if anything, they all just thought it was kind of funny. Um, and so the, did, the book is, right? <laughs> what's that? Who did? I said, you didn't yeah. think it was so funny. No, right? no, I didn't. And I, and I, I, you know, it's like, it's not to be like sanctimonious, but I just felt like, uh, I mean, you got people in, in America that are getting tossed in jail for years because they stole a candy bar or they're smoking a joint or something. And this, this right. kid stole a, a million, a million dollars worth of irreplaceable scientific knowledge. Um, yeah. And nothing happened. And so the book is really kind of my attempt to figure out how it happened, why it happened, and then a kind of madcap pursuit of, of what happened to the missing skins. I don't know if that's very no. Cliff's Notes version or not. No, that's, that's, that's uh, pretty good. That's pretty good. But right. I, I think um, the, these birds themselves, many of them are extinct, right? I mean, they can't be replaced. Uh, yeah, they're so not. They're rare. It, there are some, I mean, some of the specimens that he took are, there are like Katinga maculata. Um, 
I think there are less than 50 of those birds left on the planet. Alive. Um, yeah. Alive, right. Yeah. Um, and then some of the some of the specimens that he took, like the flame bowerbird. You know, the the flame bowerbird is not uh, endangered right now, but there are something. The British Museum told me that there were something only like twenty nine or thirty flame bowerbird study specimens. They're called in all of the world's scientific institutions, all of the world's universities or museums that have that manage these collections. And and Edwin stole, I think, 19 or 17 of them. And they're all gone. I mean, they're, you know, it's just, uh, I mean, he stole every one that the British Museum had. And so that's just a huge, you know, they could go out and gather, capture new flame bowerbirds, but they can't get another one from, from 1870. And that's the whole point of these collections is that if you, if you have a bird from 1820 and another bird, the same bird from the same island from 1890 and another one from 1940, those multiple specimens are what allow for the possibility of, of research and inference and, and deduction and all of this. And so, um, so yeah, it was a, it was a huge blow, um, but you know, I, I always try to make it clear that, um, I mean, just as a, because I think it sometimes can get lost in the, the, the kind of shock of the crime. But it, you know, he's he's stealing dead birds. Edwin, at one point in a very long interview, tried to uh, suggest to me that by stealing these dead birds from the museum, he probably saved the lives of living endangered birds because he kind of reduced the the market demand for these feathers by feeding it with the dead birds but that's that's kind of <laughs> a, a little far-fetched for, for me yeah. but uh, but yeah. yeah yeah a lot of those um what i found interesting is how you dug into the history of i i think i i didn't know of alfred uh, uh russell wallace uh, certainly i knew of uh, darwin and uh, but uh, he was a contemporary of Darwin and ended up going to the other side of the world because uh, too many people were in South America <laughs> collecting specimens. Uh, but but he had hand collected a lot of these birds that um, uh, and wasn't Wallace the one that also kind of came to the same you know um, survival the fittest the evolutionary. That's um, right. Yeah, I mean he's kind of he's he's kind of famous for being not famous. Um, he, yeah. he should be a household name, but he was, you know, Darwin came from the kind of upper crust of of British society, and and Wallace was, you know, came from a a simple family in in Wales, and hardly two pennies to rub rub against each other. And uh, but he read. He read Darwin's Voyage of the Beagle when he was 16, and and had this dream of following in Darwin's footsteps. And what Darwin was after, what Wallace was after, what what all scientists were after at that point was an answer to the question of what, how do you account for the the origin of new species and the the death of species that have gone extinct? What's to explain that? And you know, Wallace had a kind of ruinous expedition for four years in what's now Brazil uh, when he was in his 20s, uh, ended in disaster, his ship full of specimens caught fire and sank to the to the bottom of, uh, 
somewhere outside of Bermuda. But he he then set off on an eight-year collecting expedition to the Malay Archipelago, seven or eight years. And while he was there, contracted malaria well several times, but on one of these malarial fevers, the theory of evolution through natural selection kind of just appeared in his brain. And he he pieced this thing together, and in this kind of fever dream, he wrote out the first paper uh, intended for publication, explaining, setting forth this idea. And he put that paper in an envelope, and he mailed it to Charles Darwin, his his idol for his thoughts. And that that letter, which is one of kind of the most extraordinary things in the history of science, but that letter is what kind of kicked Darwin into into gear because Darwin was a little uh, he was worried about the societal backlash to hit to to the theory, which he had also reached. He just hadn't published anything yet, and so the two of them. Uh, through very different means uh, and with very different backgrounds, both uh, figured out this age-old riddle. It's just that Darwin is the one that got credit in part because Wallace was in the middle of the Malay Archipelago when, when Darwin finally put his paper out and the British Academy kind of favored their own over Wallace. So um, it's, it's an incredible story. I, I get yeah. into it briefly in the book, but it's... Um, uh, this is, I mean, the, these are not just meaningless trinkets being held by some greedy museum or something in their basement. Right. I mean, this is this is some deep, potent history wrapped up in these birds. Yeah, a lot of the birds had uh, Wallace's uh, notes and identification uh, tied to their legs, right? I mean, so that's right. That's I mean, right. Which Edwin then snipped off uh, when he got back to his dorm room and started hacking at these things with a scalpel and plucking their feathers and putting them into little Ziploc baggies. And, I mean, it was just like a feeding frenzy within the fly-tying community for these things. Um, I mean, he and didn't. This, this community of fly-tiers, of Victorian-style salmon flies, uh, this is not the same community that we see at the fly fishing show in Denver <laughs> of people no, flies. No, and, I mean, no, I mean, you know, like, I'm, I, I, I mean, having – Having spent quite a bit of time in in Colorado with with anglers there too, I mean, there's like there are there's some tiny bit of crossover um, where there there might be guys that can tie both. But the truth is that the if you actually know how to fish, um, <laughs> that you're not really tying these salmon flies. Uh, I mean, it might be kind of right. fun hobby or whatever. But the 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 bulk of the guys that tie these things are not anglers. Mm -hmm. um, They're artists, so artists the, right? That's, right, because, okay. I mean, what, you know, like, we, we now understand that salmon are essentially colorblind when they're, when they're spawning. I mean, the, what the hell does a salmon care about? Like, there's no, you don't have to be an evolutionary biologist to, to understand that there is no earthly reason why a salmon in Scotland would ever be drawn to a bird of paradise feather from Papua New Guinea. Those two creatures are never going to get close to each other, if not <laughs> that, if not through, you know, the hand of man. And so there, there's a kind of, you know, like I, I'm not good at it, but I can tie a few rudimentary flies that I'll catch trout with, and that it's a, 
as crampy as my caddis flies are, it's like one of the most thrilling things in the world to to tie one that works and to catch something on it. And it's you're communing with with nature and with these different life cycles that are going on. And it's it's a uh, you know it, it makes me feel connected to some sort of limbic part of my you know caveman brain or whatever. Right. There's not I've tied a salmon fly or two with Spencer just because I wanted to see what the appeal was and I honestly it's um it has no bearing to reality. There's no I mean I since the book has come out I've had so many people emailing me about what they've caught salmon with, you know, like a candy bar wrapper tied to a hook or you know a little tuft of dog fur and um I just don't, that part of my brain doesn't light up when I'm tying these things because it's all, in that regard, you're communing yeah. with this sort of elitist, uh, aristocratic past where it's all about showing off how many expensive things you have that you can afford to tie around this hook. Is that what it comes down to? I mean, that was my next question is, what drives this group of fly tires why is it so important to use, you know, these feathers that are rare and uh, were used maybe a hundred years ago to tie flies? What what drives them? Did you ever there figure are, that out? There are, a, there are a few of these, you know, Kelsen's book is a big one. Blacker's book is a big one. They're like from, you know, 1840, 18, I think Kelsen's was 1890, where they lay out, you know, if you're going to, you're going to fish on the river usk you have to use this particular fly which requires these katinga you know these feathers from this subspecies of katinga and these feathers from the red rough fruit crow and it's all complete nonsense there's no there's no it's <laughs> but there is a i think there is a type of person that there's a kind of completionist appeal to it because there are hundreds of these flies and there are only a handful of sort of the masters that have, you know, tied them all or who have tied all of them in, in, in this particular series using authentic, real, quote-unquote, materials. Um, but the, yeah, it's ultimately, this is a status thing. Uh, this is about being able to say that you can afford to tie these things and where you are in the pecking order based on the number of flies you've tied um, and, and the number of skins that you have. I don't have anything, like, I, I feel like I've always had to say this, especially if I'm talking to any kind of audience where there, there may be salmon fly tires in there. <laughs> you know, like, I don't, I don't have some, like, axe to grind with this. It's not like I got bullied by one of these guys when I was a kid and I was just waiting for my moment to you know, strike back at them with this expose of their community. Right. I don't care if people tie these things, but they should just be updating the recipes with, <laughs> yeah. with, yeah. with you know, dyed feathers and things. If, if this is all just artifice, then just use, you know, use dyed pheasant feathers and, and other, you know, there are all kinds of substitutes. You had Spencer on. Spencer's, you know, doing great stuff with, with dyeing turkey feathers and chicken feathers to, to resemble these things, and they're still beautiful. Um, yeah. But it doesn't work for if you've spent, some of these guys have spent, you know, over their careers, their tens if not $100,000 in uh, to buying these rare things. And so mm. if you just spent, yeah. you know, five grand for 
a red rough fruit crow skin, you're going to scoff at somebody who's tying something with chicken feathers dyed to look like that because you've got the yeah. real thing. So it's really a status thing more than anything, and an obsession, a status, the, trying to reach that status, and it becomes an obsessive journey uh, to get there. It sounds like. Yep. Yeah, and it's and it's you know it, there aren't that many. I've thought about this a lot over the years. There aren't that many hobbies that so quickly tempt their practitioners to break the law. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where, you know, it's not, this may seem like a quirky one-off thing, but I'm now at five separate museum heists that have been carried out in the name of fly tying over the last two decades. Mm. So this is not an isolated thing. This is, I mean, Edwin's was the most catastrophic, um, but I, I know the names of, I know the name of one guy who, an American fly tire who posed as a pest control worker and went into two museums in Europe and he would spray for bugs and then he would tape these priceless specimens into his coveralls on his way out. Um, it's almost everywhere I've gone. I mean, I did the launch of the of this book at the Los Angeles Natural History Museum and the head of their bird collection took me over to a cabinet and showed me the crowbar marks where somebody had pried open a cabinet to steal the exact same species that are, are the most wow. coveted by this community. So there's a huge moral blind spot that these guys have that, you know, they, are, they have developed a hard-won talent to tie these things. And I'm the first to, you know, recognize the skill because I, I am not good at tying them. Um, but they have become so obsessed with this idea of, like, authenticity, of, of being connected to these original fly tying patterns as they were in 1840 that they can't even recognize what a charade it all is that there's hmm. if it was artifice back then there's salmon are not <laughs> responding to subtle shifts in a you know one species of katinga's blue versus a slightly more turquoise blue of that same species salmon aren't understanding that at all they're not even well, they're feeding not they're just they're just striking they're out of aggression even, to protect, you know. I mean, it's, yeah. So they're it's, not fishing them. They're not fishing no, them. No, no, they're not oh, even no. fishing them. Because you'd, you'd have to be a complete <laughs> dummy to throw a $2,000 fly into a river. That's right, yeah, yeah. So, you know, like if it's, you know, it's the only reason, if I sound a little edgy, it's just because the, I've gotten such an earful from these guys after the book came out. But no one's disputing any of the facts in the book. Um, no mm -hmm. one's disputing. And, you know, they, when I talk about these other heists, they're like, yeah, okay, well, that was bad or that was bad. Because initially they wanted to just say that, oh, Edwin was this bad apple and we shouldn't all be defined by his actions. But Edwin had tons of clients in this community. <laughs> yeah, that we're and, talking about. And there are people like Spencer, who you had on your show, and, and others who, in the wake of the book, who have been trying to push for a kind of uh, new wave of fly tying, but where it's more sustainable and that you're not, to try to break this curse of this addiction to these rare materials and to say, look, we can tie these beautiful things using dyed feathers that aren't harming any populations and they're, they're not putting museums at risk. And for that, I mean, Spencer has been, you know, disinvited from fly tying shows and he's been ostracized i mean this is 
it's, it's a really kind of uh, unfortunate reaction to all of this, but... Um, Goodness, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, let me, uh, let me take a quick break here, Kirk, and then we'll come back. And uh, there's some unanswered questions out there still uh, that people are asking. So uh, hang with me, and uh, I'll be right back. Sure. Watermaster is dedicated to providing their customers with the highest quality inflatables on the market, as well as unbeatable customer service and product support. They are best known for their signature products, the Watermaster Grizzly and Kodiak rafts. These rafts are lightweight, compact, durable, versatile, and safe. The Watermaster rafts are everything your personal watercraft should be. They have been used by anglers and hunters all over the world for over 15 years, including Dave Whitlock, one of fly fishing's greatest innovators. Dave said, with my Watermaster, I can enjoy more fishing per hour than any other method I have ever tried. After two and a half years of testing 15 models of kickboats, I'm convinced that the Watermaster is the ultimate personal flotation craft for warm and cold water fly fishing. Visit Watermaster today and take a look at the ultimate personal flotation craft. Go to BigSkyInflatables.com. Again, that's BigSkyInflatables.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Kirk Johnson about the feather thief. If you'd like to ask Kirk a question, go to our homepage at AskAboutFlyFishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately. We'll try to answer as many of them as we can on the show tonight. Um, and let me just check in on that, Kirk, to see what we've got in here. Uh, Phil McCartney wanted to know, during all that research for the book, were you able to do any fishing? <laughs> or did the project <laughs> consume you? <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I have, yeah, when I was, certainly when I was down in, in the very early stages, when I was still down in New Mexico, it was a daily thing. Um, and then when I started writing the book, by the time I started writing the book, I was I had moved to Los Angeles of all places, um, fell in love and got married here. And uh, as your audience probably knows, this is not uh, you know paradise for for fly fishing. I have I have gone fly fishing for carp in the Los Angeles River, which is technically illegal, but it's fun and uh, it's a, certainly a new a new thing. But uh, but I've, I'm now kind of, because of where I'm at and because of the fact that I've got two toddlers, my days out on the water are are scarce. Um, the last time I went out, uh, certainly pre-pandemic, but I was I gave a talk up in um, in Ketchum in, in Idaho, and and I uh, I had a kind of uh, magical day where I was given access to to Hemingway's home and to his sort of private stretch of, of river uh, running behind the um, running behind his house and um, I, I mean I, I I had to give a talk that night and I was just cursing having to give a talk because I I was approaching 20 in about I don't know three hours or so and it was just a a wonderful experience and I was so excited that when I was sort of racing back to the the truck to to get to the talk in time I I didn't properly secure my my rod and reel and so when I got to the truck I had lost the the top quarter of my of my rod uh, so that's somewhere on that's somewhere on on Hemingway's uh, property at this point but uh, yeah but to the great uh, credit of of R.L. Winston, they um, I, I took care of that. I got a, huh? <laughs> yeah, actually, I, I guess I was 
I don't know how or why, but I was able to just basically, it was under warranty, or I don't know what, but I, I was able to get a whole new rod for 150 yeah. bucks or something. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I don't get out as much as I want to, but. Um, oh, you um, will. You will. Yeah. So. <laughs> kiddos been, have to grow up a little bit. <laughs> I know, but it's been one of the most painful things because it's, you know, almost weekly I'll get invites from, from anglers all over the world, and I'm just, you know, telling me where they want to take me out. And I, I just sort of like, okay, uh, it's probably not going to happen for for quite yeah. some time, but I'm, I'm going to remember that. So. Well, some of the questions that came in, um, one from uh, Charlie Broussard um, in Houston, Texas, he wanted to know, um, you know, how long, was this a big plan for this heist or, or you know, were there multiple people involved? And what was the outcome of, of the, you know, and distribution of the stolen items. So his lawyers tried to say that it was just a sort of haphazard spur of the moment thing, but that's not true. He, um, you know, I think he spent something like eight months planning this out and, you know, buying the, the latex gloves. And, you know, while he was there, the first time he took a bunch of photographs of the birds, but he also started taking pictures of the cabinets that they're in and where the windows are and where the kind of entry and exit points are because he was making a kind of visual map of the whole museum. You have to understand this is not like the public museum that you see when you, you're on your class field trip. This is a research building that where there are 1,500 cabinets spread over three floors and they've got uh, close to one million different birds there. There are three miles alone of, of birds preserved in spirits and in jars and liquid. Um, and so you have to know where everything is. He figured all that out uh, and basically got away with it that night. The, the museum uh, guard at the time, although the museum disputes this, but uh, it's not from what I've heard from other sources, but that the guard was distracted watching a, a soccer game uh, that he he just didn't notice a blinking red light uh, when it was happening. Um, but that he got back reasonable. to his dorm. <laughs> yeah, right. So I had this surreal exchange with the museum where they're like, well, he's not a soccer fan, which is just, you know, you have to be like one of the only Brits that isn't a soccer fan. Um, but, and they then tried to say there wasn't a match being played that night, and I had to do all this research to show that there was a match and it was a kind of important one. But, but at any rate, um, whatever happened, he wasn't apprehended that night. He wasn't apprehended for, for 15 or 16 months. And over that time, um, you know, he would go to fly tying, uh, you know, festivals in, in the UK. Um, uh, he was connected with people in, in Denmark and in Germany and, uh, he, I believe that he pulled off the heist by himself that night, but he did use a friend of his in Norway, this kid his age who kind of idolized him. Uh, and he, I mean, it's, I get into this in the book, I think he kind of used him as to set him up as like a fall guy, but he, he would send this friend a lot of the, the chopped up parts of the birds or the full skins and then have his friend do the 
you know, post them to eBay or to, to the forums and then handle the payments and shipping and all of that, even though Edwin certainly knew how to do all of that. Um, so, I mean, when you ask about the distribution and the network, there were a lot of people that bought these things from all over the world. In the book, I, I, show, I show the reader quite a few of them, and some of whom still have them and just refuse to give them back. Um, but, uh, you know, of the 299 birds that he stole, I think when the detective, uh, on the day of his arrest, I think they gathered... It was around 100 or 102 that were still, you know, untouched with their tags attached, which is crucial because these things look identical and you can't, the most trained eye can't tell the difference between a bird that was caught in 1840 versus 1860 if it's the same right. species. Um, so though, that was good. Like around a third was recovered for science. I think 70 or 72 were recovered without their tags and, and some mutilation, and then the rest were just gone. Mm -hmm. And so the market value of those missing skins was, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, and since the book has come out, a lot of these specimens have shot up in value, um, in, in part, I think, because they're aware that more people are are now watching them, and so the, they're just less available or it's being pushed further underground. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, I got a question in here on the Internet, uh, Amy Burns in uh, Maryland. She wants to know if you found out anything more about the robbery or recovery of the birds since, since you published the book. Has anybody come out and talked? Yeah, talk so, yeah, I mean, what, what I've... What I've learned is sadly just of more and more of these crimes um, mm -hmm. that have happened, plenty of which predated the Tring heist, the Edwin's heist. Um, oh, okay. But there's one that is happening right now that involves uh, an American university that had a substantial collection, and it involves a um, a graduate student who's been stealing these birds and posting them to these private Facebook groups and on eBay and selling them off uh, to the fly tying community. Um, I mean, I still get people, I mean, two days ago I got sent a photo of, of what is obviously a museum specimen that, that a fly tire just bought. And I don't know where he bought it from, but, you know, a lot of these guys will say, oh, this was, you know, this wasn't from a museum. It was from one of those Victorian hats that were festooned with right. birds. But you can tell the difference very quickly because they're not – the ones that are on the hats have their wings stretched out and they're, you know, they've got glass eyes and things like that. The museum specimens are meant to be stored in cabinets so their wings are drawn tight and they've got cotton eyes. And so this is still – I mean, the it's demand is as – it's still happening. The demand is as fierce as ever. Um, the people that talk to me are have been kind of ostracized by this community for the you know for the sin of telling Kirk anything about the story, which is not you know it doesn't reflect well on the community. And if I you know if I sound like I'm tarring the whole community with this broad brush, you know, like I'm I'm trying to pick my words carefully. There are there are plenty of salmon fly tires that are quite fine to just 
tie using substitutes and dyed feathers. Mm-hmm. Um, I have found that those guys tend to be actual fishermen, and so they they don't have that kind of, uh, you know, they can recognize that this is just sort of a, a fun, pretty little hobby, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, but the the hardcore of these guys are, you know, they're not going to change. They are so heavily invested in this thing, um, and they've, you know, if the book was going to trigger any kind of reform, it would have been through an embrace of using these substitutes, but the people who are trying to do that are being thrown overboard. And and so there's still a black market for these feathers worldwide, yeah. it sounds like, huh? Yeah. 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 And it's not yeah. even that, I mean, you, you just have to be in these private Facebook groups, which, you know, astonishingly, I was, I was in all of these groups for years. I don't, they just, I had become friendly or had sources with so many fly tires that when I requested to join, they just saw a lot of mutual friends and admitted me. And, you know, they just, there are all these very clear rules, like you shouldn't post the price. And when you're done with the transaction, make sure you delete the photos, you know, like all of this kind of stuff. And now I've, I'm, I've deleted my Facebook account, so I'm, I'm out of all these groups, but I, I still see screenshots forwarded to me all the time of, of what birds are being posted where. And it's not hard mm-hmm. and to, to sell these things, and it's not hard uh, to find the buyer. You know, I mean, these guys are all buying and selling to each other. Yeah. So. What I found interesting in your book, too, was uh, the fact that this was all, when these, these were being sold, and especially when, uh, you know, Edwin was was doing this, and it sounds like they're a bit more secretive now. But this is kind of wide and open, and and that, you know, the the federal authorities weren't weren't even paying much attention. I know, nowadays, uh, you know, fish and wildlife they want to know every little feather and skin you're shipping out or into the country, you know, and 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 everything has to be registered through them and pay exorbitant, you know. Taxes. Yeah, you're right, and it. You're right about that, and I and I share your. I mean, I understand the frustration, and it's in part because I, I mean I spent quite a bit of time trying to wake fish and wildlife up to this this illicit yeah. trade, and it's to the, and the only way it finally had a breakthrough is I found this one agent who I can't remember. I think he had been in Iraq too, but I think he finally realized that I was not just some internet kook or whatever. Um, but I shared with him an Excel database that I had I had built that had thousands of transactions with the the names of the seller and the, the names of the buyers and had them organized by the species and which ones were CITES protected and which ones were CITES 1 and 2 and whatever. And that was, there was this kind of breakthrough where they then said, okay, like, because of this now, we're going to open up an investigation in this. And they told me, they're like, we want you to be our confidential informant. Now, the reason why I can tell you that is because I'm like, all of these guys know who the informant is going to be, right? Like, I'm at least, <laughs> yeah. like, it's, it's, I'm, let's take a wild guess. It's probably Kirk, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and yeah. so I, like, but, but the other reason why I can tell you this is because that conversation about opening up this investigation uh, occurred in uh, December of 2016, which was the 
the penultimate months of the Obama administration. And so when the Trump administration came in, the thing just got shut down. And so nothing, nothing was done. I mean, they, I, they, they were supposed to go to these different, you know, ASFI and these different fly tying shows. And, and I had people at those shows saying we better sell these things off before Kirk's book comes out because it's all, it's all <laughs> going to be game over, you know? And so they're, they're very aware of, you have to have a, an incredible blind spot to think that like you're holding on to a museum specimen and that it's, it's just, it has no connection to this. So, so no, the even, if it this is, even if it wasn't stolen in the first place, to ship many of these specimens out, you know, across international borders is against CITES. You know, no, uh, that's, that's right. So, and, of course, yeah. the, other thing that, the other thing that cracks me up about this is, is a lot of the, the classic salmon fly guys, they think they've figured it out that all you have to do is sort of whisper that this is a pre-CITES bird and it's kind of like a magic spell that you <laughs> you are you are liberated from any kind of reach of the law by saying oh no this is pre-CITES or I got this from my my grandpa or whatever that it doesn't matter you that might mean if it was pre-CITES of course you, that might mean you can if you can somehow prove that that you can keep it to yourself but it doesn't mean that you can then sell it even right. international, even across state lines, it, it, there's a, that's the whole point of all of this. Yeah. And so yeah. there's a there's a kind of um, you know it's like for, for the the feds are have dropped the ball on this in part because they're just motivated by they want the big rhino and elephant busts. That's the kind of thing that gets the headlines and gets I them. I guess so. The big, yeah. And so uh, you know nabbing some. Some dentist from 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 you know Oregon or something who's got a sleeve with twenty rare feathers is just not not as not compelling to while, them. You know? huh? Yeah, yeah, that's too bad. Um, Jim Budd uh, had a question. He's from Lincoln, Nebraska. He says, um, "Would you care to speculate why the judge was so lenient and um, and well, I'll just leave it at that. Why, why the judge was so lenient?" Well, it's a, it's a fascinating part to the whole story, but um, Edwin's lawyers sat him down with, of all people, Simon Baron Cohen, who is Borat's cousin. He looks exactly <laughs> like Sasha Baron Cohen, talks the same way. Um, and he's one of the world's leading experts on Asperger's. And at the time, Baron Cohen had been involved in another very prominent case involving a Scottish hacker that had hacked into the Pentagon and we were trying to extradite him and Baron Cohen had assessed him as, as uh, having Asperger's and that ultimately led the UK to say, no, we're not going to extradite. We're not going to let you have him. And so Edwin spent, I think it was maybe an hour or so, uh, sat down with Baron Cohen, was given this, assessment that Baron Cohen invented. It's called the Adult Asperger's Assessment. And you're asked these questions like, I mean, do you like doing things repetitively? Did you, did you have a lot of friends when you were little? Do you know when you're talking on the phone when it's your time uh, to start or to stop talking? And that 
assessment is online along with the kind of answer key as to how to evaluate the response. And I say this not because I have any kind of, you know, skepticism about Asperger's on its own. I mean, I have people in my extended family who have been diagnosed with it. Um, but in this case, you know, what Edwin told me in our interview was that, you know, no, he never, he never had problems. He never avoided eye contact before. He didn't, he had plenty of friends. He had long-term romantic interests, which is a, a, you know, one sort of disproving thing. But he told me that he, and I'm paraphrasing here, but that he kind of became what he needed to become when he was getting this assessment. And so during the interview with Baron Cohen, during the assessment, he started avoiding eye contact and he was rocking back and forth and rubbing his hand on his leg kind of obsessively. And so Baron Cohen gave him this assessment which then his lawyers brought to the court and the judge's hands were pretty much bound from that point forward because, uh, I mean, the judge was not happy. The judge said, you know, society would be served by putting you behind bars, but he understood that any sentence he gave him would probably be overturned on appeal because of the Asperger's diagnosis because the Brits are, uh, you know, felt like they their prisons weren't, well suited to to incarcerating somebody with Asperger's, and I yeah. always feel like I need to interrupt myself to say, like, it's not like I'm. I mean, Americans, we imprison way too many people, so it's not like I'm super throw them in jail and yeah. throw the key away. But to do something this catastrophic, <laughs> yeah, no, it wasn't shoplifting, and, and and you know, it's like it, there's there is a kind of moral hazard question here, where like you know. For somebody to do something like this and to to basically get away with it, they didn't. Even, I mean, they. You know, he's. You know, he has some reputational damage now because of this book. But um. Um. Uh, but no, the the reason why he got away with it was because of this assessment. I had a kind of terse exchange with Baron Cohen, who did concede that Asperger's could be faked in an assessment, and since that assessment, Asperger's has been uh, removed as a standalone assessment, a standalone diagnosis in the DSM-5, and so it's, or six now, I guess is the, the number it's at, but they're, on its own, it doesn't exist anymore. It's been folded into the autism spectrum disorder. Mm, and so the only other thing I'll say on it, though, is just because I, it's a sensitive subject and I want people to understand where I'm coming from, people with Asperger's have by and large, a heightened sense of right and wrong. They are more pained by injustice and they're more scrupulous in following the rules. And so the idea that a plotted heist of this magnitude could just be forgiven by saying, oh, well, he's just got Asperger's, that, that's offensive to me and to those in the community who have this diagnosis, who say, wait, like, we're, you know, so-and-so has Asperger's, that doesn't, they're not breaking into museums, you know, like, let's, yeah. let's just be, let's be, like, blunt about this, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, now, you had, uh, we're, we're getting close on the time here, but uh, I wanted to get your, you actually flew, I think, with your wife, too, right, over to Europe to interview Edwin Rist? I did. In person? And what was your 
takeaway from that time you spent with him as as a person, as a you know uh, his character? What, what were your what were your takeaways? Well, you know, I think I I can't remember if I wrote this in the book, but you know what I was struck by was. Um, I mean, he's a charming, nice guy. I mean, if in another life, in a different set of circumstances, I could totally have seen becoming good friends with him. He's he's incredibly intelligent. He's a gifted musician. You know, he's obviously had a colorful life. But I think, you know, he he is not somebody who is, he's not racked with remorse at all. I mean, he had all kinds of excuses for, you know, he blamed the museum for being so poorly guarded. He blamed his customers for believing his cover stories. Um, you know, he tried to dispute, he made up some nonsense about the actual scientific value of these things and tried to say that after 100 years you can't extract DNA, which is just rubbish. Uh, I mean, we we extracted DNA from a 400 million year old uh, specimen that was found at the bottom of the Great Lakes like a, 10 years ago. So I think one of the lessons of, of Edwin Rist to me is that I think for a long time he was the smartest kid in the room. And I think that can get you into trouble later on in life. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, if you if you think you can just outwit everybody, and he really did outwit people for quite a long time, and are, I mean some people have said like, well, he he got away with it even, so you know, maybe he just outwitted all of us. But but no, I was not like uh, met with by somebody who's really trying to come to terms with with what they did. I think it was sort of more of a chess match between the two of us, where he was trying to figure out how much I knew. And I was in this kind of uh, complicated position where I wanted to extract as much as I could from him while not revealing my sources and and also playing dumb at certain points where I, I did know the answer because I wanted to see if he would lie to me. And so uh, it was an exhausting, uh, it was, a I think, an eight-hour interview, one, one session. Um, but um, I'm glad he did it. Yeah, yeah, that says a lot for your research to be able to get that interview, um, certainly. Well, we got to close this up. At the, uh, Rich in New Jersey, Phil in uh, Murray, Murray, Utah, want to know, is there any forthcoming book, uh, continuation of the story, or anything that, that you're going to write to follow up? Uh, um, I'm, not, uh, I'm not sure about a, a follow-up. I'm not sure about a follow-up. I mean, I, when I started finding all these new heists, my wife got a little panicked that this was just going to be my <laughs> thing now for the rest of my life. It's just, uh, you know, bloodhounding the classic fly tying community. But uh, I do have another book coming out um, uh, next next fall, likely. Um, it's a very different story, but it involves a, um, a clash between Vietnamese refugees and the Ku Klux Klan along the Texas Gulf Coast in the late 70s, early 80s, and they were fighting over fishing rights, uh, shrimping and crabbing and oystering. And the, the Vietnamese were kind of uh, brought here. They, didn't, they weren't dreaming about moving to Galveston Bay. They wanted to stay in Vietnam, but they were driven out 
when the when South Vietnam fell, and um, they ended up here. And uh, a lot of them had been shrimpers back home, and so when they started up in the Gulf, at first the whites kind of played them for suckers and sold them these uh, ramshackle boats for you know five times what they were worth. But the Vietnamese fixed them up, and they the whole family would work on the boat, and they just fished the hell out of them and saved up their money to buy new boats and and before long the the whites were getting a little freaked out by the competition and they tried to ban refugees they tried to drive the vietnamese out and when that failed they um they brought the clan in and so the clan started firebombing vietnamese boats and giving 90-day ultimatum at the threat of of bloodshed to drive them from the bays and so uh, i've spent the last couple years uh back and forth in Texas meeting with Klansmen and with these refugees who are now Americans of course and and with some of the whites that participated in this campaign and and just telling this uh pretty astonishing story um but yeah that's the that's the next that's one that's what's next uh, yeah well that sounds like another good read a real real um real life and and true adventure um down there uh well yeah it's uh can't wait for that to come out. So good, good, good for you. Well, um, we got to wrap it up here, Kirk. Um, stick with me for a few more minutes. We're going to give away your book and um, a few other things. So just uh, hang tight for a few more minutes, and we'll close things up. Sound good? Sure. Yeah. Okay. We're going to uh, give away those prizes I talked about earlier. Uh, one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. Uh, and then we're also going to give away Kirk's book, uh, The Feather Thief. And I want to make sure when I ask the question that I get the right answer. So um, let's, um, let's do that in just a moment. The Bristol Bay region of southwest Alaska is home to the largest runs of wild salmon on the planet and some of the best trophy rainbow trout fishing found anywhere. The pebble mine still remains a threat to that region, and two million acres of federal lands may also be at risk. The entire fly fishing industry is united in this epic conservation battle. Thousands of fishermen and 31 Alaska native tribes depend on Bristol Bay every day. Pebble mine will poison Bristol Bay with over 10 billion tons of toxic waste, which threatens to destroy their livelihoods. The only way to stop it is to act now. Anglers from across the country are joining in the fight. Be one of them. Visit SaveBristolBay.org forward slash tell President Trump, and uh, there you can sign a petition to help stop this mine from um, being built. And you can learn more about that, SaveBristolBay.org, SaveBristolBay forward slash tell President Trump to sign the petition and uh, voice your concerns. So I hope you all take the time to do that. Just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what did you think of the show? Just click on the link and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. So now it's time to give away a couple prizes. Um, the, the, the winners from the drawings are randomly selected from our show's registration database. If you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for the next show. Uh, you don't want to miss out on some of these great prizes we have to offer. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show and, and make arrangements for you to get your prize. First thing we're going to give away is one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org. Great organization to support. They do a lot with conservation and research, uh, both in cold water and salt water as well. Um, and uh, our winner for that is Gene Browning. 
Jean Browning. So congratulations, Jean, um, for uh, playing with us. And I know you'll enjoy your membership to, to FFI. Now we're giving away a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. And that's courtesy of AmatoBooks.com, who publishes a lot of great books and periodicals in the fly fishing world. So uh, check them out. And our winner for that is Art Nudek, Art Nudek in California. So Art, congratulations on winning that. So thanks for playing with us on those two drawings. Now we'll give away a copy of Kirk's book. Let me just clear my queue here. And there's a, a lot of great questions came in. I hope we answered most of them. And uh, I, there's still some questions coming into now. So we're just run out of time, folks. Sorry about that. Uh, but a lot of people enjoyed the talk tonight. I can see the, those comments coming in, Kirk. So uh, thanks for that. Um, so um, if you want to win Kirk's book, name one of the birds that he mentioned uh, that was being used for tying these salmon flies. Uh, name one of the birds, and uh, that might be a little tough, but we'll wait here uh, for a second. It takes them a minute to hear me because there's somewhat of a delay, and then once they type uh, things in, uh, then I get them. Um, so we're just waiting here, Kirk, for just another minute. Well, maybe you can get out here to Colorado and fish sometime, too, with your kids. Uh, I've been taking my grandson down to the a lake just down the hill from my house up here in the mountains, and he's been catching, albeit with a bobber and some uh, power bait, but <laughs> he sure loves to fish. And uh, oh, I had to, uh, I, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been, I think Colorado is, I, I think I've done more events there than, than anywhere else in the country. Oh, really? Because I, oh. yeah, I just have, I've, uh, but I, on one of my events up there, I, I went out uh, with Kirk Dieter um, on the, oh, yeah. and, um, and, uh, and Jeff Muller, um, they took me out, uh, I guess, to the west, west fork of the plant, I might be getting, I, I, I can't remember north where, but it was some, North, North Fork, Fork of the Platte. That sounds right. Um, and I was more nervous about going out with those guys than than anything about the tour, just because I, you know, I was my cast was out of form and everything. But um, they got me onto some slab of I think it was a twenty-two incher or something. And I know was, where you were fishing. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a beautiful place. I'll never forget it. Um, but uh, about fifteen but no, minutes I was from up my in, house. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and uh, I was up in Steamboat Springs for for an event or two um, last year when the paperback came out. But um, uh, but no, I, I love Colorado. I'm trying to talk my wife into letting us move up there, but she's from Montreal originally, and she's done with winter. So um, oh. I, I may be stuck in Southern California for a while, but uh, <laughs> some, summer trips. Well, I think we got a winner here. Um, uh, Kotinga? Yep. That's it. That's one of them. Okay. Tom Meyer, Wild Rose, Wisconsin. Uh, you just won a copy of uh, Kirk's book. So uh, congratulations on paying attention and taking notes and, uh, uh, and for, for playing with us tonight. Many other answers coming in that were good, too. So, uh, But uh, Tom Meyer was the first one. 
Uh, so thanks a lot. Now, Tom, you just need to send me, I have your name, I have your email address. You just need to send me your address in the uh, same way that you sent the answer. Uh, just put your address in there, send it to me, and we'll get uh, get that book shipped out to you. Kirk, I, I really appreciate you being on the show with us tonight. It was a pleasure. Uh, I loved the book, and uh, you filled in some more blanks for me <laughs> myself, and uh, really enjoyed it. And uh, uh, it's kind of interesting, too, because the way I got connected to you was – sitting in a ranch house up in, in southern Wyoming at a friend who manages a cattle ranch up there. And his wife said, we were talking about my show and fly fishing, and she says, I know this guy, Spencer uh, Syme down in New Mexico, and I think he knows the guy that wrote The Feather Thief, and you should interview <laughs> him. <laughs> so there you that's go. where it started, over a bottle of wine up in southern uh, uh, Wyoming, and uh, you never know how things get connected. So. Uh, well, we should uh, we yeah, should also we should make make a just since he's mentioned Spencer but Spencer is in the the bowels of uh covid infection right now so he's uh he's, he's got it I, he's got it his whole family oh. does and i i think they're they're turning the corner but he's had a rough couple weeks or so but um oh, if anyone if anyone is ever down in new mexico and I mean, he's just, I can't recommend him highly enough. He's just, he's just an incredible human being. But, um, but no, it's my, it's really an honor to be on your show and thanks for having me. Well, great. I'm glad to have you. Uh, hopefully everybody, you found the, uh, podcast archive on our website. If you haven't, just look at the link at the top of the menu, podcast archive. I've done over 325 shows now on Ask About Fly Fishing. Search by any keyword and you're going to find some kind of show about it. It's just a library of learning for you. Uh, check it out and uh, enjoy. Our next broadcast will be December 2nd, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And on that show, I'll interview uh, Kip, Kip Veith. And our topic for the show will be monster muskies. Uh, Kip is a professional guide in Minnesota and winner of the 2017 Orvis Guide of the Year Award, and he loves fly fishing for muskies. Muskies are finicky, to say the least. Known as the fish of 10,000 casts, you can bet you'll have your work cut out for you. Kip will help us learn about muskies, including where they live, where they eat, what, what triggers them to bite, and how to rig your terminal tackle for success, presentation strategies, and, of course, how to close the deal with the muskie. So join us and learn Kip's secrets to success. I'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Douglas Outdoors, uh, Baja Fly Fishing, and uh, Watermaster for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.